I say it and it happens. It's almost like I'm in charge. <laughs> Hey, everybody, I'm Kyle Rizdahl. Welcome back to Make Me Smart, where none of us is as smart as all of us. Hello, everyone. I'm Rima Khreis, and for Kimberly Adams, thank you for joining us. It is Tuesday, August 22nd, which means it is time for the weekly deep dive. Uh, Today, we're talking about something that has been in the news a lot this last week. I find it all very fascinating. I'm excited to learn more about it. We are talking about the state of self-driving cars where things stand, where they might be going, um, why this is so hard, uh, what's going on in San Francisco, all those things. We're going to talk about it with Joanne Muller. She covers the future of transportation at Axios. Joanne, welcome to the pod. Well, thank you. Good to be here. All right. So on a scale of we're just getting started with self-driving and uh, we're all going to be in self-driving cars, Mm -hmm. uh, where are we on that spectrum, beginning or end? (laughs) Well, overall, definitely at the beginning. But if you are living in San Francisco or Phoenix right now, this is reality. You can go Mm. and ride in a self-driving car today. Mm. Well, San Francisco, it's been the ground zero for this experiment. Um, You know, California regulators have recently allowed these robo-taxi companies to expand their operations in the city. And I have not been seeing the most promising headlines, but can, can you just explain, like, what is going on over there? Uh, sure. Well, so uh, these cars have been tested in San Francisco really for several years now because it's a good city to to try this technology out. It's it's a it's a small city, but it's very dense. There's a lot of traffic. There's, uh, you know, hills and crazy intersections, lots of pedestrians and so forth. So basically, these these car companies or, or tech companies, as it may be, have said, boy, if we can make it in San Francisco, we can make it anywhere. Hmm. And so that is why everything has been happening in San Francisco. So just recently, as you mentioned, uh, the California state regulators uh, allowed two companies, uh, Waymo, which is a unit of Alphabet or Google, Mm -hmm. and also uh, Cruise, which is uh, the self-driving division of General Motors, to both now charge fares for robo-taxi rides around the city pretty much all day long. They had some restrictions before. Mm. So... There's nobody in the vehicle. Uh, It's just the passenger. And what is happening in San Francisco is that these cars, uh, while while they're doing a pretty good job of driving people around, they seem to keep getting into trouble. Uh, (laughs) And in particular, the fire department out there is pretty upset about this because these cars keep wandering into fire scenes. Uh, They ran over fire hoses, for instance. One, just the other day, one of them got into a crash with a fire truck that was coming through a red light and came into ongoing traffic. Um, And, you know, this is obviously not good. There's even a case where uh, a robo-taxi from Cruz rolled into a construction zone and came to a stop in wet cement, which (laughs) I think is kind of a a metaphor for what's happening. Exactly. So, but but look... um, well, so you talked about if they can make it in San Francisco, they can make it anywhere. Clearly, they can't make it in San Francisco. Hmm. Well, look, you know, there are serious problems, yes, and this is why the the state has now said, you know, we just gave you that permit, but now right. we'd like you to cut back 
by 50% of the size of your fleet until we get a better handle mm. on this. Um, but you got to keep it in perspective too, right? Because there's like 40, 43,000 people killed every year mm. in mm. traffic accidents. And if we can cut that even in half by having self-driving cars that don't drive drunk, they don't get tired, they obey all the traffic laws, uh, you know, that's that that's progress to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. in fairness, what's happening right now in San Francisco is these cars are under a microscope. Yeah. So every little thing they do wrong is going to get a lot of attention. And, and that's not a bad thing. We need to know who we're sharing the road with. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's interesting because there's clearly a lot of tension between this kind of technology and just the reality of our infrastructure, right? You know, we operate and exist in a very human-centric road system. How will our infrastructure need to change to accommodate uh, a lot more self-driving vehicles? Well, there's a question over whether it actually will change. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, in San Francisco, the the assumption is that they can just fold these cars into the normal traffic. Um, There are a few instances, though, where, you know, the the, the self-driving car needs to know where the safe pull-off spot is to pick you up, for instance. I'll, I'll tell you a story. I, I rode in um, a cruise uh, robo-taxi in San Francisco uh, some months ago. I think it was November, probably, mm-hmm. last time I was out there. And um, I I called the car from the app. I was staying at a hotel. Uh, the, the driveway of the hotel was like a, you know, sort of one of these U, uh, U-shaped um arcs and mm-hmm. i thought oh mm-hmm. like like my uber driver the car will probably come in here and then i realized mm, maybe it won't actually mm-hmm. so i better go stand out on the the street well along comes the car and it drove right by me by about 20 or 30 <laughs> feet and it it turns out that that is the designated spot for that particular hotel uh in oh. in the car's mind, oh. that's where oh. it was trained to stop. It wasn't trained to stop where the person's standing. Mm-hmm. It was trained to stop at a particular place. So these are going to be issues. Like curb management is going to be an issue right. in all these places. Wow. There is some discussion about whether we should have designated lanes for autonomous vehicles. And um, I live out in Detroit, and there's a there's a company that's working on that right now that would be mm. sort of an uh, autonomous vehicle corridor. And the advantage of that is that these cars are staying in the same lane. They can go at the same speed, which means they're almost like a convoy. They can mm. travel really close together, and it's almost like a train of cars. Mm. And you can move people more quickly, allegedly. Um but that's not ready for prime time yet either. There's a lot of research to go. So in the meantime, you have humans sharing the road with right. robo taxis, right. and and that's where we're starting to run into a few mm-hmm. problems. Mm-hmm. Joanna, who gets to decide what the rules are? Is it mm-hmm. like city by city? Is it going to be a state thing? Are there going to be federal regulations? Ah, uh, this is a great question. So, the federal government uh, does not. Uh, have any regulations on autonomous vehicles. Um, There's been a lot of efforts in Congress to pass some sort of legislation, but it keeps 
keeps getting bogged down on questions about, um, you know, who's liable if there's uh, if yeah. there's uh, a lawsuit. Um, there's cybersecurity issues that, uh, uh, you know, lobbyists are getting involved in. And so it, it's been four years um, that they've been kicking this uh, down the road and it's it's not really happening. So what you're left with is a patchwork of state regulations. Um, and I think it's about 30 states now would allow self-driving cars to be tested and even deployed. Um, but it's really a much smaller handful that are where, where they're actually happening right now. So California certainly is one. Arizona, Texas, Florida, uh, Michigan, uh, Pennsylvania, uh, those are kind of the leading states on this. Um, Nevada, too. I'm sorry, I left off Nevada. So you could go to Las Vegas now and you can um, order up a, a robo-taxi. It still has a human behind the wheel at the moment, but that probably won't last forever. Hmm. Hmm. I, I want to circle back to something you mentioned or alluded to earlier. It's something I've been thinking about which is just how easy it is for these companies to lose massive amounts of trust among the public with one single bad event. And, you know, clearly there are significant, very significant problems that need to be addressed. But generally, I think we as humans accept a greater amount of risk with cars operated by humans than we do for cars operated mm -hmm. by robots. Um, like if if I were to go to the grocery store this afternoon, I know there's a chance I might get into an accident. Whereas with a robo taxi, there might be an expectation that I'm 100% safe. Anyway, I'm just genuinely curious to get your thoughts on this difference in tolerance and how it might play out as we potentially embrace these vehicles even more. Yeah, well, it's such a good question, right? So we have this intuition. Um, you know, you, you come to an intersection, you can make eye contact with the other driver. You can gesture with your finger. Just one finger on the wheel lets them know, okay, I'm going to let you go ahead. Um, there's this, this understanding uh, and a sort of a predictive nature in the human brain that is a little bit harder to do uh, with a robot. Like the robots can be trained to see really well and they might actually see things that you and I don't see. Mm. Um, but it's that intuition about what the other person, the other car, the other dr driver is going to do where it's, it's a little bit more difficult. So in the case of this crash with the fire truck, for instance, in San Francisco the other day, the, 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 the robo taxis in the proper lane going straight, but a a uh, a fire truck right. decides to go around right. traffic and come into oncoming traffic to get through a red light. And mm. you know, if if there was a driver, the fire truck driver and the and the person in the car might have been able to acknowledge what was happening. But in this case, right. the robo taxi did not. Mm. Um, you know, there'll be an investigation into why that happened. But there's that missing human-to-human uh, -human brain connection. Yeah, this is also interesting. Joanne Muller uh, is a transportation reporter for Axios. This was really great. Thanks so much for coming on. Joanne, thanks a bunch. Oh, thank you. Thanks a bunch. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I don't know. I what mean, are your thoughts? Will, yeah. will, will, I, will I will I ride in one? Yes. Will I be mm -hmm. uh, nervous? Also, yes. But then, Same. you know, I mean, you know, by the time 
you know, 20 years from now, it's going to be like nothing. I think, I think so. It's it's right. a strange time. We're like in the right. in-between phase, right? right? Where there's a lot of excitement, a lot of money, a lot of promise, um, which is the case, you know, has the potential to create huge societal change. Um, and so it's not surprising that it's this, this disruptive. Right. Um, right. There are going to be tensions. So. Totally. Totally. All right. Uh, well, look, uh, let us know how you think and feel yeah. uh, about robo-taxis. Would you ride in one? Would you not? Uh, are, we, are we ahead of our time? Who knows? Let us know. Our number is uh, 508-827-6278. 508-UB-SMART is how you can do that if uh, you feel like spelling it out. Email us at makemesmart at marketplace.org. We are coming right back. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's do some news. All right. Um, you want to go first? I, I will go first because mine's a quickie. Actually, it's 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 uh, on the face of it, it's a quickie. But but if you think about it, it's uh, it's a little longer. So mm-hmm. uh, the Secretary of Commerce, Gina Raimondo, is going to China. Um, that news became official uh, either yesterday or today. I forget exactly when. Here's the catch. So this is now the fourth Biden administration cabinet level official, right? You had Blinken, you had Secretary Yellen in the trip that uh, I went on. You had um, John Kerry, the um, climate ambassador, who kind of got slapped around by the Chinese, to be honest with you. And now you have Raimondo all trying to, uh, in Yellen's words, set a floor under this relationship, the relationship between the two biggest economies in the world, which is all well and good. Here's the problem. Raimondo is going to have a much harder time because, number one, she's fourth down the chute, right? So it never gets easier. But number two, Mm -hmm. this visit, and remember, she's responsible for the CHIPS Act and all of that high-tech investment that the United States government wants to make in American infrastructure for semiconductors. But it also comes after the Biden administration uh, in the last couple of weeks put that new executive order in place about outbound investments, which is going to limit how much Mm -hmm. private equity and um, hedge funds can uh, invest and what kind of investments they can make in certain sectors of the Chinese economy. Things with military applications, AI, quantum computing, those kinds of things. And Mm -hmm. I will just tell you, based on my reporting trip over there with Secretary Yellen, um, the Chinese are PO'd about this, <laughs> and and yeah. it is going to be really hard for Imondo to come out of there uh, with a positive sort of result. I don't know what there's going to be any you mm-hmm. know joint statement or communique or what have you, but but it's going to be kind of challenging, I think. And so yeah. that's that's my news item. Mm. That'll be interesting to see yeah. how it how yeah. it unfolds. I should say, Kai, I actually didn't tell you this. I loved your reporting in China. Oh, well, I meant to message you afterwards. <laughs> <thank> you. <laughs> um, yeah, love that conversation you had with Jennifer. Um, yeah, she, well, she was great. Right? With I mean, she, you I know, know. She, she's the subject matter matter expert. She was, she was, and she came up to Beijing for it. It was great. It was super fun. Yeah. Thank yeah, you. It was fun to listen to. 
All right. So my news item, um, it is about housing. So we got the monthly existing home sale numbers today, um, mm-hmm. which I think is, yeah, it's on the show today. Yep. In case you were wondering, sales are down. Um, it is not a fun time right now to be shopping for a house. Uh, so I saw two related articles this morning, one in the Wall Street Journal, one in the Washington Post, that I think help paint the picture of just how people are feeling. Um, so first, the Wall Street Journal, the article is titled... Um, Goodbye bathtub and living room. Uh, it's about how more Americans are embracing smaller homes because, well, you know, because they have to, yeah. uh, especially with mortgage rates being so high right now. Um, average rate on a 30-year fixed home loan uh, reached over 7% last week. So mm-hmm. it's the highest it's been in a really long time, as we've reported on. So this article talks about how uh, builders are having to make homes they build more affordable for potential buyers and also just because construction costs are getting more expensive. Um, So yeah, one way they're doing that is by shrinking the home. Uh, There's some interesting stats in here. The article points out that since 2018, the average unit size for new housing starts has decreased 10% to 2,400 square feet, which is interesting. Yeah. uh, They had an example in Seattle. Uh, The homes there are 18% smaller than they were five years ago. Um, so builders are axing. Yeah, we're going to say. Well, I was, I was just going to say that's not necessarily a bad thing because uh, we have been building ever larger houses in this country for a very, very long mm-hmm. time. Right. If you look at Good average point. size of houses from like 50 years ago and then today, um, my guess would be we're probably a thousand, maybe two thousand square feet bigger. And look, all of that takes mm-hmm. more resources to build. It takes more energy to heat and cool. And yeah. all of those things that go along with more consumption and, oh, hello, climate change. So that I, is I a very good point. Yeah, I don't think it's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. So they're uh, they're acting like dining areas, bathtubs, loft spaces. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so that's going on. And then this article in The Washington Post was about another housing trend. The title for this one is, let me pull that up, The Enduring Allure of the Cheap Old House. And that is about how a growing number of people are interested in homes that are old, that are built more than 100 years ago. Um, they make up, there's an interesting stat in here. They make up about 6% of homes in the U S. Um, so you trade imperfection for a lower price. Um, of course it requires more work, right? Uh, I'm a little skeptical. I'm like, eh, probably well, well, I, like I, sinking I, a lot of money. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm laughing because my house is 112 years old. Oh. Um, and just because it's in the greater Los Angeles area, it definitely was not cheaper. Um, but also every time you open up a wall in that house, it is, and I'm not kidding, $5,000. Truly, 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 truly. It's crazy. I mean, we had an electrician in probably three or four years ago. He found knob and tube wiring in that house. Knob and tube is the old (laughs) stuff with the bare wires and and all that jazz. Terrifying, terrifying. Yeah. So, you know, I I love, I love my house, but Man. It's a lot of work. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. like a whole thing now. There's even an HGTV show that's coming in the spring. It's called Who's Afraid of a Cheap Old House? Yeah. Uh, like <laughs> yeah. on social media, people love seeing the house flips and, you know, yep. it's fun to look at. Um, yeah. But yeah, so just wanted to point out those two articles because I think increasingly people are trying to come up with more creative avenues to home ownership yep. because yeah. it is depressingly out oh, of reach. I'm, I'm, yeah. Yeah, it totally is. So. Uh, all right, so that's the news. Uh, let's do it a little, uh, little mailbag. 
Hi, Kai and Kimberly. This is Godfrey from San Francisco. Jesse from Charleston, South Carolina. And I have a follow-up question. It has me thinking and feeling a lot of things. All right, so we asked uh, a little while ago uh, for your summer reading recommendations, and and now that summer's almost over, um, here's a little snapshot of what some of y'all sent us. Hi, I'm calling to recommend a summer read. It's called The Book of Delight. It's a book of essays. You can put it down and pick it up, and it's by the poet Ross Gay. While this title might sound like a fantasy novel or maybe Stephen King, it's actually about the Federal Reserve and some other big financial (laughs) stuff. It's called The Creature from Jekyll Island. I just got off the waiting list at my local library for Clint Smith's newest book, Above Ground. I read the audiobook version read by Smith himself, which is what I highly recommend. His poems are relevant, beautiful, and challenging. My recommendation for your summer reading list is... A Perfect Vintage by Chelsea Fagan. Her story deals with a lot of power dynamics in finance and romance that are intertangled in a way that you guys sometimes cover. I have a summer reading list recommendation for you. And it's also the only thing that's really given me comfort through all these hard to digest news cycles. It's called The Storm Before the Calm by George Friedman. That was Heather in Santa Rosa, Kurt in Florida, Abby in North Carolina, Gordon in D.C., and Jamie in Charlotte. Um, We're going to link the full list of summer reading recs our listeners sent in on the show page. Um, I love this segment. I'll also share what I've been reading. Um, Recently read Flawless by Elise Hugh. Oh, yeah. You recognize her name. Yeah. It's supposed to be really good. It's great. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. It's really good. She, um, yeah, she's a host over at NPR. It's a really just fascinating book about. Korean beauty standards, how Korean society ties appearance to professional prospects. Um, And uh, yeah, she makes some interesting parallels to beauty standards here in the U.S. Yeah. And the role that technology plays in all of that. Oh, that's so interesting. I didn't know the technology part. It's got a lot of buzz, gotten a lot of buzz and and good for her. I'm totally happy for her. Uh, Okay. So next item. Um, Last Friday, after the better part of a beer, I'm sure, I asked uh, why (laughs) there were some of you on the live stream who didn't vote in our poll. uh, And some of you, including Nancy in Oregon, uh, wrote in to explain. And here's what she said. To vote during the YouTube live stream on Friday requires listeners to log in using a Gmail address. Those of us who have something mm. different are out. So I think I count as a listener on the live stream, but not a voter. Others, by the way, did say um, that the chat doesn't come up if they're watching the live stream on their phones or on their Kindles. Um, mm. So that could be it. So fine. I apologize. I'm sorry <laughs> for my my unkind remarks about listeners to this uh, that was a funny that was a funny show friday um uh, all, all, right. all, all credit all credit to nova Safa. come on right i mean yeah please comedian yeah um good. before we go we're going to leave you with this week's answer to the make me smart question which is of course what is something you thought you knew but later found out you were wrong about this week's answer comes from president and ceo of campbell soup mark klaus one of my most pivotal moments professionally was becoming the general manager and the president of Kraft Foods uh, Greater China. You know, I get in my first town hall. I'm like, I'm going to really show people that I care and that I'm, you know, nice guy. And uh, we had just finished a big systems uh, integration in the business. And so I had the woman who led it stand up in the audience and I was just gushing at how great she had done and with every compliment I was giving her, I could watch her getting more and more uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm like, huh, 
Did I get the wrong person? Like, what did I do? I'm walking off stage and my head of HR, who was a long, long time expat, comes out to me and he's like, Mark, you, you cannot do that. You can't single people out mm. in the Chinese culture. That's not the way to do it. You know, 3,000 years of the group being more important than an individual. And although it's kind of a simple thing that I thought I knew that I didn't know, it built for me a very uh, quick appreciation that if I think I understand or know other cultures, I better just listen and learn a little bit before I jump in with both feet. Cultural <laughs> awareness is huge. Yeah, that's right. So big. So, so big. Oh, that's my a good Lord. one. Yeah, totally. Well, we want to hear your answer to the Make Me Smart question. Um, our number is 508-827-6278, also known as 508-UB-SMART. Make Me Smart is produced by Courtney Bergseeker. Ellen Rolfes writes our newsletter. Today's program was engineered by Jake Cherry. Justin Dooler is going to mix it down later. Our intern is Neil Farshabandi. Ben Tolliday and Daniel Ramirez. Oh, I miss those two. Composed yeah. our theme music. Our senior producer is Marissa Cabrera. Bridget Bodner is the director of podcasts. Francesca Levy is the executive director of digital. And Marketplace's vice president and general manager is Neil Scarborough. Perfect. That is the show. That is the show. No matter how much longer the music goes on. <laughs> Just kidding. Sorry. Just kidding. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.